was called, Nick? <laughs> Learning Grace. Learning Grace. It was going to be called Finishing Well, but we've already done a series uh, like that. So, uh, but I wanted, to, I wanted to, to actually use this series and challenge everyone to think about what it means to finish well in 2020. So in 10 weeks' time, I don't, in 10 weeks' time, it's the 27th of December. It's two days after Christmas. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Uh, so we've got like nine Sundays or something for this series and nine weeks to finish this year, really, because once we hit Christmas, everything's holidays and that. And, and I kind of thought about like, it's been such a disrupted year in so many ways. For everyone, it's been disrupted. And, and, and we've had the shared kind of experience of the whole COVID thing and church stopping and uni stopping and all this kind of stuff and being at home a lot more. And then everyone in their own world, their own lives, has had their own you know, journey, their own story this year. And now we've got like 10 weeks to go. So I kind of thought about, I was thinking, I want to finish this year well in faith. And I want to challenge us too. And I reckon that Colossians is a great way uh, of doing that. And so we're going we're gonna to preach through this. Um, so let me explain a bit about the context of Colossians. This is a letter uh, that was originally, originally written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians living in a city called Colossae. And uh, three weeks ago, I, I, re- I preached this sermon in the morning, which you, you may not have probably heard Therefore, It was called, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. And I was speaking about how the place of Christianity in Australia has shifted in the past generation. So you go back a generation or two, and Christianity is kind of like the, the dominant, it's a central place in culture. It's respected, it's honoured, and it's an influencer of culture. Okay, and, what's, and, and so uh, an old pastor who used to be in my church like two generations ago, I heard this story, who used to say to people, make sure you put on your resume when you apply for a job that you go to the Unley Park Baptist Church. That'll mean something to people. Now, if you were today to put on your CV, you know, I attend church or, or you know, I'm a passionate follower of Jesus, the decisions I make in this workplace will be guided primarily by my faith in Jesus. <laughs> but people are like, whoa, that's... You know, there's probably going to be an inhibitor potentially of you getting a job, unless you're going for a job in a Christian school or something. They'll be like, yes, that's awesome. Um, because something has happened to the, the place of Christianity. It's moved from the center to the margins. It's moved from being honored and respected and given a place of kind of reverence to being uh, marginalized, uh, misunderstood, uh, not highly respected. In fact, in some ways, in some quarters, considered to be offensive and uh, irrelevant, outdated, all this kind of stuff. And when I meet people and they ask me about, and they find out I'm a pastor and they ask me about my church and they're just always incredibly surprised to know that there's so many children, youth, young adults, families in my church. The church is, is alive. Um, because in Australia broadly, it's moved to the margins. And the interesting thing is that the Colossians, when Paul writes to these churches in the New Testament, he's writing to churches in very similar situations. The Christians reading this are hearing this as a small group of people, a small group of believers surrounded by a whole culture of people who are not believers. A whole lot of people that don't believe the same thing they do, who are not, uh, don't respect their faith, misunderstand it and don't, you know, don't treat it as a, as a really good thing. And so he's writing into their culture. And the great fear in that situation for them is that actually the culture is going to influence them more than the gospel. And the great, great challenge is because the culture is so dominant around them that they're actually going to start following the way of culture, not the way of the cross. And so they're being challenged in that. And this is so much what we need to hear today. 
So when uh, the Colossians would have received uh, this letter, it would have been delivered by a messenger who would have carried it with them. There's no uh, Australia Post um, to deliver it. So someone would have carried the message and delivered it to the church and, and it would have been a really special thing. They probably knew it was coming and they're waiting for it and, and, and they've waited a long time. They received this precious letter and they would have gathered around and sat down and someone would have stood up with the scroll and they would have read the letter. They wouldn't have, uh, sorry, someone would have read it out so everyone would have heard it, not followed it in their Bible. They would have just heard it and they would have heard it from start to finish. Okay? So I thought um, that a cool way to start this series would be to, for you guys to hear it as they would have heard it and to, to read this whole letter from start to finish. It's not massively long. It takes about 12 minutes. And just to allow the Word of God to feed you sort of totally without me adding to it or taking away from it. That The first thing you hear is just this letter read in its entirety. Does that sound cool? Now, 12, 13 minutes of someone just standing and reading, you've kind of got to tune in, all right? It's going to be easy to go in and out. But at the same time, as you hear it, sometimes God's going to draw you to a particular thing. I was speaking to someone after church and they said, oh, I just, I came to one part and I actually sort of stopped listening because I started really thinking about this one little phrase that was in there. So if that happens to you, that's cool. But then you've got to stay sort of on track. All right. I'll read out, there's four chapters. I'll read out the chapter numbers so you can actually know where we're up to. The last chapter is really short. It's the greetings. Chapter 1, Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have forgiveness, redemption, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. 
He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what I still lack in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me, to present to you the Word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy which Christ so powerfully works in me. Chapter 2. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those in Laodicea, a neighbouring town, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human traditions, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In Him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Chapter 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, you too will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another 
with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair because you know you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace and seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And then the final greetings, chapter 4. Tychicus will tell you all, about the, all the news about me. He is a dear brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they've proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of Laodicea and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, See to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. All right. Kind of almost just want to stop there, but I do have a sermon to preach. The stuff that I wrote as well, so let me get into that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I listened to that whole book read out and you can, you know, on the Bible app, you can have it read so that as you're walking along, you can hear it. And, and leading into this series, I just listened over and over again to that 
and just allow different parts of that to speak to me. It's a really cool way to hear the scripture, to hear a whole book all at once. But let's look at verse uh, three to uh, three to eight in the time we've got left um, before I head for the door and head to York Peninsula. Um, one thing that that I'm always interested in, one thing I, I'm really uh, like to read about, is the stories of great Christians of faith, great heroes of the faith through history. I love reading about people who, whether it's hundreds of years ago or, or more, more recently, whether it's people in Australia or, or other overseas or missionaries who went into new lands, hearing about the stories of Christians who have persevered through hardship, who have endured suffering, who have shown incredible boldness and courage to do things that, are, that, that just make challenge me and go, wow, could I, in the same situation, display the same trust in God and take the same leap of faith? People like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against Nazi Germany as a, as a German Lutheran pastor. Guys like Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, or John Wesley, who, who started uh, Methodism and it spread throughout England and preached to tens of thousands of people uh, in great situations of great hardship. Great missionary pioneers like Hudson Taylor, who left England and went into China and, and spent his life there ministering to people. Uh, great stories of people of faith. But as well as the great kind of heroes that are, that are sort of known throughout the world, uh, I'm sure there's probably people within your own life who for you have been significant kind of heroes of faith to you, people that you look up to, people that have displayed a quality, a character of faith that, that when you look to them, it's really encouraging and in, in a sense it's something you, someone you look up to and give thanks for. Um, when Paul thinks about the Colossian church, when he starts writing to them, he starts off extremely positively. He speaks about, he says this about it, he says, we always thank uh, God, oh, I'm in Thessalonians, I'll go back to Colossians, but <laughs> that doesn't sound right. All right, there's <laughs> a little moment there, it's because I read the whole book, so it moved me to a different place. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Every time he prays for these people, he ends up giving thanks for them. Um, and he does that because of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love they have for all God's people. But I thought, what an incredible thing that is. There's something about this church. In a sense, these guys are heroes of the faith. And every time he prays for them, he ends up just giving thanks. I thought, what an awesome thing that is for a church, for that to be said about a church. And I thought, wouldn't, really, I would love to lead a church that decades down the track, when people have ended up, many people going off to a different church, maybe they've moved interstate or overseas or to a different part of the city or whatever it is, and they remember their time at uh, Hills Baptist Allgate, that they look back and, and how are they going to remember their time here? Wouldn't it be wonderful if people look back and think about this church, every time I remember my time at that church, I give thanks to God because it was so formative. It was so important. There's actually many people who look back at past churches and, they, and there's a lot of sadness and disappointment and hurt. I don't want to ever have that said of this church. I want to be a church where people give thanks for their their place in this church and that's what's being said of this church in Colossians and then in our own lives I guess isn't that a great thing if someone was to think of you and say man every time every time I think of Abby I give thanks because of her faith every time I, I think of Ivy I give thanks every time I think of Declan I give thanks 
And, and that's just such a wonderful thing that, that the lives would actually be generating response if I give thanks for that person. So, so the thing in the Colossians that he gives thanks for, he names two things. He says, because of their faith in Christ Jesus and because of their love for all of God's people. I'm going to unpack those two things. Um, but, but what it's saying is it goes on to talk about the fact that they're living this incredibly fruitful life. If you go down a little bit, verse 6, it says, um, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So you get a picture of this church. It's a church that leaves Paul to want to give thanks and a church that since the day they heard about Christ Jesus and accepted the grace of God has been a fruitful church. So in my uh, backyard or front yard at the bottom alongside our driveway, you've got two fruit, fruit trees. There's, a, there's a, an apple tree and a lemon tree. As a, the apple tree is really big. The lemon tree is big for a lemon tree, but smaller than the apple tree. Um, but the apple tree, in the entire time we've been living in that house, maybe nine years, I've never eaten a single apple from it. Like each year it produces about five very small apples that, that don't fully form and then they fall off the tree and the birds eat them and there's something wrong with that tree. I, pro I should probably prune it. It's probably my fault, really. But um, uh, the, the lemon tree is incredibly productive. Again, I don't do anything to it because I'm not much of a gardener. But something about it, it just produces this incredibly uh, rich harvest uh, year in, year out. And so which tree do you think I like better and value better? The, the lemon tree, right? It, 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 because it's fruitful. And it's a great reminder that you know, the Colossian church is a small church, but it's an incredibly fruitful church. And, and really God's, God, what God's interested in is fruitfulness, not necessarily size. And I say that because, you know, I'm leading Hills Baptist Church, which has grown hugely in size in the last, you know, eight, nine years, become a very large kind of church. But that doesn't mean a lot to me because I know what God cares about is fruitfulness. Are we a fruitful church? That's what really counts. Um, and so they're, they're fruitful because of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all God's people. Now, faith in Christ Jesus can mean a number of things. We're saved by grace, the scriptures say. We're saved by grace through faith. So we're not saved by works, but through believing, through faith. Um, but following that initial decision of faith, and what Paul's talking about here is not just that initial decision, but flowing from it should be a life of faith, i.e. that daily we live by faith. And you may have heard me tell this story before, but I think it's a great illustration. It's the story of the tightrope walker whose name was Blondin. Okay, Blondin the tightrope walker. And this guy lived like 150 years ago or something. And he um, uh, used to do these incredible stunts where he'd like tightrope walk between two high-rise buildings in New York City. And, and there was a time when he tightrope walked between two sides of uh, Niagara Falls, right? He's got this wire strung up and all he's holding is like uh, this big long pole and he's, he walks across with no wire and the, the waters are thundering below him and if he falls off, he's dead. And a huge crowd gathered to see this incredible stunt. And he got, as he got to the other side and he stepped off, the crowd starts cheering and he calls out, do you believe, do you believe? And they're like, yes, we believe. We believe in you. We believe. And he said, great. Who then will be the first person to climb on my shoulders and we will cross back to the other side? And the crowd goes silent. And so it's one thing to believe 
and that's pretty important, and to tick the boxes and have good theology and all that. But Jesus invites us into a relationship of trust where following Jesus should lead us into situations where it takes great courage and we wouldn't take the step unless we actually knew that the person who's carrying us is Christ Jesus and the power of God. That's what he's talking about, their faith in Christ Jesus, a daily stepping out in faith to live courageously. And the second thing is their love for all God's people. And this is kind of interesting because he doesn't say your love for people. You know, he could just say your love for all people, but he specifically talks about their love for um, all of God's people, your love for uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that the reason he talks about this is because actually that the way that the, the that God has designed for Christians to live is in community, in the church, and to love one another. And then out of that love and care and spurring one another on comes the love that goes out into the world, right? Jesus said, by this will all people know that you're my disciples, by your love uh, for one another. And so uh, they've got this wonderful love for one another and faith in Christ Jesus. And I want to kind of make a point about this love for one another because... Our culture today is an individualistic culture. Like people a generation ago used to live in community, like fairly deeply in community. They used to know all their neighbours and they used to kind of do everything in their neighbourhood and there was a much greater sense of community than that which exists today. Today community is like uh, scattered, it's bits of community. Like we kind of have some online community and we kind of have a little bit of community over here and a little bit of community over there and we get in our car and we stay in our houses and we... We sort of join that community if and when it feels like it suits us. And we can bring that thinking into the church. So we come into the church because we want to be built up in, in our faith so we can have a good relationship with God so we can go out and we can sort of live our lives. But we actually don't realise that we're actually here for each other. And the Bible is like we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, I emphasise that a bit when I preach because it's in the Bible and because it's so important in our individualistic culture, that we remember that we are created for community, for one another, and to build each other up. So, faith in God's people, uh, faith in Christ Jesus, love for all of God's people. Then we've got to dig a little deeper and say, where has this wonderful faith come from and this love for God's people? And if you look at verse 5, uh, we, we see this revealed to us. It's, he, uh, Paul goes on to say, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Now, um, uh, many people here, like our church has got a relationship with Hohidii in Indonesia, and, and many people here, quite a few, have had the, the blessing of going to Hohidii. Uh, but Hohidii is kind of on an Indonesian island, and when they purchased a big piece of land that was a coconut uh, farm, I think. Um, they purchased this big piece of land. It's sort of surrounded by jungle on the outskirts of a village. And the one thing they needed to, to find out after they purchased it was uh, what sort of water is available on this property, right? They knew people are going to be living there and, and they didn't know. They had no idea. So they dug down a bore into the ground and then they, the water started to come up. And what they discovered is that they had purchased land really over a spring, that, that provided the most pure, beautiful drinking water you could imagine. 
So when you go to Hohidii, there's all these taps that are tapping into this spring and any tap on the entire property, you can just turn on the tap and you pour out this water and you're in Indonesia and, and you know if you go to those sort of places, often the water's not good and all of this sort of stuff and any tap, you just, pour, you just turn it on and Westerners go there and you just drink the water and it's drawn straight from the spring, untreated and it is the most beautiful, refreshing water you could ever drink. And, and there's kind of an, an analogy there, a metaphor there, because it's almost like God's provision for them as they live in the goodness of God. They're, they're refreshed in God that allows them to go out and do the ministry. As they drink that water, they're refreshed physically and it allows them to go out and live out their faith into the community around them. And I reckon that's a great metaphor for what Paul's talking about here. He's saying there's actually a spring, there's actually a rich source of something that refreshes us and actually spurs us on to love others and to live by faith. And that spring, when you tap into it, is hope. The hope stored up for you in heaven. Now, heaven in the West, in our Western modern culture, secular culture, has become something relegated to kind of an imaginary concept and, and ridiculous kind of images of it where you're kind of like wearing some white dress if you're a bloke and, and you've kind of got little wings and, you're, and a halo and you sort of float around on a cloud and there's these ridiculous images and, and heaven has been reduced to being a ridiculous fairy tale. But the scripture reveals to us that if your eyes are fixed just on this world, if you live for nothing more than the things of this world, if your hope in life is nothing more than to retire with enough money to get the caravan and travel around for 20 years before you get too old and you get, uh, end up you know, kind of not able to do that stuff anymore, if that's what your hope is set in, then in the end you're going to end up with a great sense of emptiness. Because we are designed for heaven. We are created for eternity. The Bible says that, that God has set eternity in our hearts. And we are created for this. And so the hope we need to, to look forward to is something way beyond this life. And we need to look forward to eternal hope in Jesus. It's interesting that, that we're kind of like become the now generation. Like a generation ago, people used to have to wait a lot more for a lot more stuff right? Uh, let's say an overseas holiday. An overseas holiday in the past was maybe like you'd live your whole life and then at retirement age you'd be like that you'd take this great holiday overseas if you were lucky. It was a special thing. But like my kids came home to me one day and they're like when they were 10 one of my kids is like dad it's so unfair I'm the only kid in my class who hasn't been overseas. It's like oh wow you're so um, living such a tough life. Um, and, and even just like simple things, like you used to wait to, to hear the news. Everyone would like wait and, and at six o'clock at night you could tune in and find out the news from the day or, or you get the paper the next day. But, but now everything is available like straight away. Like it, you want to find something out, it's, it's right there on your phone. You know, you want to contact someone, you contact them straight away. You've got your phone with you all the time. Everything's kind of the now generation and everyone in your generation wants a lot of stuff right now. They like saving up for stuff is not in. Putting stuff on credit, you know, afterpay, all of that stuff is in. And that plays into everything. That plays into how people today think about bigger stuff like relationships, sexuality, all of that. It's like, let's do everything right now. Let's just have everything. We want it and we want it now. Because really, what is there to hope for? So let's just go after everything now. But let me tell you, there is a future eternity. The early Christians who were persecuted often 
to the point where they were martyred, that is to mean they were killed for their faith. When they were being thrown to the lions, when they were being made into human bonfires, when they were being uh, torn apart by wild animals, do you know what they became famous for? They became famous for singing praises to God in the midst of that. They would be about to be martyred. They would be tied up, about to be torn apart, and they would start praising God. And the Roman authorities found out it had the opposite effect of what was desired because what was desired was that they would start cursing or they would start you know, shouting out curses against the God that had led them, their faith had led them to be at this point in their lives and, and that others would be able to jeer at them and all this kind of stuff. But what they found is that people were just sickened by this and that people started to go, what is with these people? What have they got? What is this faith that they're singing about because they're about to be killed for their faith and they're praising God and singing about the eternity that they're about to enter into. And the question is, have we become just like our generation where our eyes are not fixed on the eternal hope but just fixed on the here and now, the immediate? The scripture says, so we fix our eyes Uh, Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. But where are our eyes really fixed? So easy for us to fix our eyes on this life. So the source, the spring, the spring is to deeply go into remembering and dwelling on and thinking about hope. Like there's there's a famous saying which is like, this person is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. But that's actually not the problem for us today. The problem is that so many Christians are too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly good. So we've got to draw from the spring. We've got to drink from the spring. So let's push a little deeper though. How is it that the Colossian church came to be holding on to this hope and, and experiencing this hope and looking forward to this hope of heaven? And the answer is through learning grace. Let's push a little deeper into the passage. It says this, uh, In the same way the gospel has been bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard about it and you truly understood God's grace. Verse 7, You learned it from Epaphras. You learned this grace from this guy called Epaphras, who is the guy that went and planted the church and ministered to these people faithfully uh, to establish them in their faith. And so I kind of think about learning grace. Uh, Many of you here aren't married uh, yet, but um, learning grace is a little bit like like marriage. This is kind of the analogy, I think. So when you receive grace, when you truly believe for the first time, at that point you are saved. Um, Just as when you stand in front of a church or wherever you stand and you make promises and you sign the forms, at that point you are married. But what you discover as you go on a little bit in life is that at that point, there is still a lot to learn about marriage. And then you've been married for a year or two, you you discover there's still a lot to learn about marriage. And then you get to where I am and next year we celebrate 20 years of marriage. There's still quite a lot to learn about marriage because you go through different ages and stages and situations and contexts. And so you've got to keep learning. And I think grace is like that. We've got to keep learning grace. Right? I, I never reach a point where I said, well, uh, I've taught my sermon on grace to the church. Uh, I never need to mention grace again because we've got to keep learning grace. You see, the thing is that 
There's many Christians, all Christians have been forgiven, completely forgiven. But there are many Christians who struggle to accept that they're truly forgiven. All Christians are accepted by God, accepted completely. But many Christians struggle to accept that they are accepted by God. All Christians are loved unconditionally. God loves you unconditionally, but many people struggle to accept that they are loved unconditionally. Uh, those who have put their faith in Jesus, if you've done that, you are secure. You've got eternal security through Jesus. But many struggle to accept and live in the grace of God that you are eternally secure. And so there's this learning process, learning to live in grace, learning to live in grace, learning to live in grace, not by works, I'm not saved by works, I'm saved by the grace of God and learning to live deeply in that grace. So let me conclude by kind of summarising this. The passage ends up saying this, um, learning grace leads to truly understanding God's grace. Truly understanding God's grace leads to having eternal hope, the hope stored up for you in heaven. Uh, having eternal hope leads to faith in Christ and love for all God's people. And faith in Christ and love for all God's people leads to a richly fruitful life. Let me repeat that. Learning grace leads to truly understanding God's grace. Truly understanding God's grace leads to having eternal hope. Having eternal hope leads to faith in Christ and love for all God's people. And faith in Christ and love for all God's people leads to a fruitful life in which there is growth of the gospel and God's kingdom. I don't know if the band can come up just as I finish off with the last little thing. One day Jesus met a woman at the well. And this was a woman who had obviously, when you hear her story, had a lot of problems in her life. Because of the things and decisions she had made or the things that had been done to her, she was ostracised from her community, treated badly, probably laughed at, scorned and mocked. And one day she meets Jesus at a well. And Jesus talks to her and he says to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water, living water water from a spring. Sir, the woman said, she gives a bit of a red herring comment, she says, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep, where can we get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Yada, yada, yada. And Jesus says this, Jesus answers, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Such a rich image. Uh, we sang the song 10,000 Reasons before and uh, I heard Matt Redman at a conference talking about that and he was talking about how powerful that song has been to many people because actually we sing a lot of songs that talk about God being with us in this life but not a huge amount of songs that actually talk about eternity and the eternal hope we have. But that song says, says this, it's got that last little bit, you know, and on that day when uh, my strength is fading, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending, 10,000 years and then forevermore. 
And all of us, you know, a lot of you guys are young, all of us are going to reach that point when we come to the end of our lives. And I feel that if we just, if people that have just tried to kind of hold on to the material things of this life for their hope and have looked forward to nothing more than retirement and comfort and ease and, and, and all this kind of stuff, they're going to end up with empty hands. But those who have put their faith in the Lord end up with a deep hope, an eternal hope that they hold on to and take with them into the life to come. This life is a fleeting moment, a temporary assignment, but we are created for eternity. He has set eternity in our hearts. Hold on to that hope. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've set eternity in our hearts. You've created us for that. You've given us a soul. You've planted it deep inside us. This body is, uh, is temporary. Um, but you actually have a new heaven and a new earth. You have an eternal glory that awaits us. And this is the promise, the sure and certain promise, which we hold on to through the blood of Jesus and his death on the cross and his raising to life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill each of us with hope, that you would lift our eyes beyond our present circumstances and beyond this life, and that through the hope of eternity, you would give us a perspective, a spring that feeds us and nourishes us that we might love deeply and that we might live by faith and bear much fruit for your kingdom and your gospel. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.